Let us begin with the reading of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 to 11. Message titled, Spiritual Endowment. Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom, to another a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by that one Spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and He distributes them to each one just as He determines. Amen. Amen. This text is part of that great section of chapters 11 to 14, which has to do with the context of corporate worship. We've learned already in chapter 11 that during the time of worship, there was a problem of women not wearing veil, and basically they were showing irreverence to not only the social context, but the church traditional context. And so Paul had a word regarding that situation. Another problem that we saw in chapter 11 was that during the time of communion, there was some kind of discrimination going on, the wealthy, particularly against the poor. And so Paul had a word to say about that. And beginning today, we're going to be studying chapters 12 to 14. And here, it has to do with the exercise of spiritual gifts in the context of the corporate worship. And here, Paul is basically going to emphasize the fact that the Corinthians are lacking in wisdom and discernment regarding the exercise of spiritual gifts and utilizing them in the context of the church worship. So let's uh, just go through this text that we have read for today systematically, and I'd like to expound on this. Let's begin with verses 1 and 2. Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. And Paul talks about here, according to NIV, gifts of the Spirit. But actually, the technical term here is pneumatikon, which literally means spiritual matters. So Paul is basically talking about spirituality. Regarding spirituality, I do not want you to be uninformed. And here, the word, the technical word is literally ignorant. I don't want you to be ignorant in the blind regarding the matters of Christian spirituality. This is what Paul is saying. Now, why do you suppose the Corinthians were 
so ignorant about true spirituality in Christ. Well, we already discovered that they were, they had a tendency of spiritual pride. They perhaps thought that they had a sort of a level of spirituality already that they have been influenced by the pagan worship before they came to Christ. And they brought all these in. And so some of them thought they were super spiritual. Some of them simply because they were gifted in spiritual matters in the previous life as pagans. They thought they can simply import them into Christian context of community and worship. But Paul is saying that they were lacking true wisdom and discernment. And he says in verse 2, You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. We have to understand this pagan context. Not only the Corinthians, but basically all the churches in the context of the Roman Empire, they were influenced by what is known as the Greek mystery religions. And so they thought they can enter into the mystery of the divine through some kind of spiritual encounters and experiences. So it was a familiar language for the Corinthians and other churches in those days. When we talk about ecstasy and we talk about trance and we talk about the type of rapturous experiences they have in the spirit. And Paul says they were so influenced or moved by the mute idols. And by this, he goes back to that text um, that we have studied earlier about food being sacrificed to idols. And Paul says idols by themselves are nothing. They are simply things. They're not living. We believe in one and true living God. And therefore, don't mind that. But having said that, Paul was concerned about the spiritual or the demonic forces working behind these idols. And so on one hand, he's saying idols are nothing. They're mute. Uh, they're not true. They're not living. But demons can work surrounding such uh, engagement in idolatry. And these Corinthians, who were so influenced by their pagan past, they were engaging in all kinds of spirituality that has to do with ecstasy and trance and revelation and, and even healings and powers. And we'll see the equivalence to all of that or counter equivalence to all of that in Christianity. Or rather, we have the true spirituality. We exercise all of these gifts. But these demons are simply imitating or counterfeiting what we have in Christianity. And the first discernment that we must have regarding spiritual gifts is this. And it is found in verse 3. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. The primary indication that we are inspired by the true Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is that we must confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, what is Paul talking about? We do confess Jesus as Lord. I think most Christians or most church-going people, they would confess Jesus as Lord. And we think it's as simple as that. Just confess it. Then I must have confessed by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But you need to understand the context in the early church days. 
to realize how difficult it is to actually confess Jesus as Lord in the public setting. And so I want to talk about that a little bit. But first of all, I want to address this reality that there were some people going around actually cursing Jesus. William Barclay, in his commentary on the Corinthians, talks about four scenarios, four types of context in which maybe people were actually cursing Jesus. Maybe some of them were still influenced by the old Jewish tradition. That is, in the Jewish synagogue, they would lift up prayers based upon the scripture. Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. And so Jesus Christ died hanging on the cross. And so he must be cursed one. And those who would believe in Jesus must be following this cursed way. Besides, they thought all Christians to be heretical sect. So in an indirect sense, in the synagogues, they are accustomed to cursing Jesus and the Christians. Another context would be that as the Jews would proselytize Christians, they would force them to curse Jesus in order to make a re-entry into Judaism. And Paul himself said to King Agrippa that during the time when he was persecuting the Christians, he confessed that he forced them to blaspheme. That is, blaspheme the name of Jesus as he forced them and converted them back to Judaism. That would be the second context. The third context would be that of the Romans who were persecuting the Christians. And uh, that the Christians basically had to refute Jesus Christ in order to show their allegiance to Caesar, who is only a Caesar would be considered their God. So we have a story of a proconsul who forced Polycarp, an aged bishop of Smyrna, and this was in the second century, and he forced Polycarp to swear by the Godhead of Caesar and blaspheme Christ. And what did Polycarp say? This aging, frere bishop, with the sobbing as he stood up to confess Jesus Christ because he knew that at the moment that he refused to swear by the name of Caesar, he said, 86 years I have served Christ and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And he went the way of martyrdom. And the fourth scenario that William Barclay asks us to consider is the possibility that perhaps the Corinthians were so influenced by the previous pagan way of worship, they brought all this kind of hysteria or frenzy into Christian worship. That in the midst of worship, they might have just kind of blurted out what they remembered in the yesteryears and may have actually accidentally cursed Jesus. You know, that can happen even during the time of uh, a great anointing of the Holy Spirit. I've seen this in, in the past. When there's a crowd of people and they're all gathered together, not only the Holy Spirit manifests, but demons also manifest. And people would be blurting out some nonsensical things, something that is blasphemous, from the perspective of Orthodox Christianity. 
And that can happen. We may say, how could that happen? During the time of Holy Spirit prayer meeting. But that can happen. I've seen that happening. Why? Because sometimes demons manifest. Sometimes people just psychologically, they, they haven't uh, basically been transformed in their minds. They brought their old baggages and old customs from yesteryears, and they may just by accident blurt these out. But whatever the case it may be, the important thing is this. If you are truly led by the Holy Spirit, then you must confess Jesus Christ as Lord in a sense of total allegiance with no compromise. As a matter of fact, Jesus' is Lord was one of the earliest of church creed, according to Philippians 2.11. And the term kurios, which is translated as the Lord, is the official title of the Roman emperor. And so Caesar is Lord or kurios. But the New Testament attributes kurios to Jesus Christ. And this term, kurios, very interesting, was the translation of Yahweh in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is Septuagint. This was the, the Old Testament that they read. And in the Old Testament, all these indications of Yahweh, they were translated as kurios. So in the New Testament, if Jesus is kurios, they're saying that Jesus is Yahweh. The Yahweh, the name, the personal name of God in the Old Testament is now attributed to Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And they refuse to give that title to Caesar. And so what they were saying was, we are willing to lay down our lives with our confession, with our show of allegiance to Jesus Christ. And no one could dare to do that unless they were truly inspired by the Holy Spirit. Not only inspired, empowered by the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit has to push you onward on the path to martyrdom. And this was how the early church was. The story is so different today, because our confession is so cheap. Anybody can confess Jesus Christ as Lord without any persecution whatsoever, without any cost whatsoever. Martyrdom is something so far removed from our concept as we confess Jesus as Lord, as we sing Jesus as Lord. But it was not like that in those days. And we need to identify with the early Christians. When they confessed Jesus is Lord, they were refuting every other God and Caesar. So today, in order to confess Jesus as Lord by the true inspiration and power of the Holy Spirit, we must say, Money cannot be my Lord. Fame cannot be my Lord. Any allegiance to any symbol or human being or system cannot be my Lord. It has to be purely Jesus Christ. And we need to purify our faith even today. And we see all throughout chapters 12 to 14, we see the centrality of Jesus Christ. So you might say, is this a section on spiritual gifts? from a self-oriented perspective. And a lot of people think that this is what it's about. I want to know what my gifts are. I want to know how God has endowed me. I want to know what potentiality I have. It's about me and it's about I. But the fact of the matter is, it's not about us. It is about Jesus Christ. And if it is about me, then we are following the pagan ways. Because in those days, the Corinthians were no different from any other in the Roman Empire. They loved this 
concept of being endowed with spiritual ability so that they can have access to spiritual riches and knowledge. But what Paul is saying is, no, it's not about spiritual gifts. It's not about us. It's about Jesus Christ. So in chapter 12, he talks about the body of Christ in his diversity and unity under the headship or lordship of Jesus Christ. In chapter 13, he talks about love as the essential character of Christ that permeates all of our spiritual experiences. In chapter 14, he talks about spiritual gifts to be exercised with Christ-likeness to build up his body, the church. Now, I wonder whether the charismatics of today, those people who are attracted to spiritual gifts, who are employing spiritual gifts, really are Christ-centered in our understanding of spiritual gifts. So, what Paul is advocating here in terms of true spirituality is not so much personal experience of ecstasy or some kind of spiritual experiences or even otherworldliness. Rather, he's talking about true maturity that is based upon corporate life of accountability as an expression of personal allegiance to Jesus Christ and His body, the church, here on earth. And then in verses 4 to 6, now he talks about the relationship between gifts manifestations and God in the triune identity and the purpose of all these gifts given by the triune God. And it has to do with common good. Let's look at verses 4 to 6. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in every one, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. You see here, he talks about different gifts, different services, different workings. But at the same time, he emphasizes the same Spirit, the same Lord, same God. And that is a Trinitarian uh, description there. The same Spirit, the Holy Spirit, same Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Same God, obviously, he's talking about in context, God the Father. So we see diversity in terms of all kinds of manifestations of God here on earth. But he unites all that diversity in terms of the same God, that is God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when he talks about the difference, here I think the proper term would be more of a variety or diversity or something that is distinguishedly assigned to the individuals. He first of all talks about gifts. The Greek term is charismata. And now why would he emphasize the gifts here? And I think there's a reason why he chooses these terms. Because he wants to point out this is not something that is inherently mine. It's not something that we earn from God and possess it as my own. And it is not even earned at all. 
It's not earning God's favor or attention that I'm somehow greater if I manifest in these gifts or not. But the fact of this idea of gifts is that God, out of His loving grace, has given these endowments to everyone. And that's the way God is. God is generous, He's loving and kind, and He is willing to endow all of us with these gifts. So it's not about us, it's about God. It's God gifting us. Second term he uses is services. And the Greek term here is diakoniai. And he emphasizes service so that no one can utilize these gifts or these abilities to show off their own talents and prowesses. Because our job, the way we should operate is as servants. It's about servanthood. It is not about magnifying our own selves here. And thirdly, he uses the word workings. And in Greek, it is the term energeinata to point out the fact that this is not some theory or concept. This is not just uh, some knowledge stuff but it is actual energy of God working to produce results, like change lives, transform relationships, so that our lives are effective, having testimonies, our gifts are activated, our spirits are awakened and quickened. And so the whole idea here is that God endows us with gifts for the purpose of serving others, and it is God flowing through these gifts in an energetic way to manifest himself through the members of the body of Christ. And then in verse 7, he wraps up this section by saying, Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. You might even say that this is the key verse in this text. The whole purpose of God giving us these manifestations, these gifts, these abilities is so that we can contribute to the good of the community. In other words, these are not for our individual ego purposes. It is for the purpose of the community. Just like our God is communal. God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And through Jesus Christ, He has formed a body which is communal. Everything has to be community-oriented. It is never an individualistic thing. Here I do want to say that having uh, many years of experience as a charismatic minister, I was very much involved in these kind of gifts and, and manifestations for many, many years. I was naturally very interested in seeing what God has gifted me with, what God has gifted others with was very much engaged in empowering others, activating others in gifts and so forth. And long ago, I even had a church that was very, very heavily charismatic, and uh, all kinds of things happened. And I think we can look back and really identify with the First Corinthian church, very gifted church, very powerful church. And initially, I think we did focus on using our gifts to empower the body whole purpose is bring those gifts together, empower the body. But then I also saw the tendency that people who are gifted tend to be a little, perhaps, prideful, thinking that they were a little better off than others. 
And then you see people starting to size each other up and sometimes even manipulation of the gifts. I don't think they were conscious of what they were doing. But that naturally happens when you feel you're endowed with something. When you feel like you have some kind of superior abilities, you tend to measure yourself and look down on others who don't have those abilities. And if you don't think that you quite measure up in terms of those abilities, then you feel inferior. You have some kind of complex. And all of these had a way of affecting the community. You just can't have a community that's holistic and healthy as long as you and I, we operate like that. And so what Paul is saying is this. Just remember, the gifts are not about yourself. Gifts are not to be elevated and shown off as though you're performing on stage and trying to prove to others how great actor you are. Gifts have nothing to do with that. The gifts, the higher, the more powerful the gifts are, it is they are to be used to serve the rest of the community. So the key question we must ask is, regarding the gifts and the manifestation is this. Are they all truly serving the betterment of the body? Or are they breaking the body apart? Is the body becoming worse as a result of you exploiting those gifts? Or is the body really being built up as a result of your exercise of spiritual gifts? And we're going to touch upon this more and more in the coming weeks. The final section I want to address is from verses 8 to 11. He had just finished saying, Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And then he talks about all these specific gifts that the Spirit has distributed in the case of the Corinthian church. Let's read this section together. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. Here, the term message is more literally a word. It's the term logos, a word of wisdom. Not the word, but a word. Or you might even say a portion of the word. A word of wisdom. To another, a message or word of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. And by the way, here, this faith is not the saving faith, which should be very simple. Just simply opening our hearts up and trusting the Lord to save us. But here it has to do with the, the faith that can move the mountain, so to speak. A miracle working type of faith. To another, gifts of healing. And this is plural, by the way. Healings of all different types by that one spirit. And another, miraculous powers. And uh, some scholars would say this has to do with the deliverance ministry, exorcism. But we can add to that raising the dead, and all kinds of nature miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. And here you may ask the question, what, what spirits are we distinguishing? The demon spirits from the Holy Spirit to human spirits? Is that what we're talking about? Or it could be talking about discerning the motives, inner spirits of individuals. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. This is... Um, that, that whole concept of prayer language tongues that we are uh, familiar with. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. And we all know later that this interpretation of tongues has to do with the context of worship 
when somebody under some kind of inspiration blurts out in foreign language that no one understands, then somebody has to interpret that language. In verse 11, all these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and He distributes them to each one just as He determines. Now, we see nine gifts listed here in 1 Corinthians 12, 8 to 10. And we're seeing the latter portion of chapter 12, we're seeing again different arrangements of different gifts. But we'll get to that later. But for now, we'll look at these nine gifts and compare them to Romans 12. And Romans 12 has gifts like different types of leadership abilities or service abilities. Something that we are very familiar with, except for prophecy, per se. But gifts like administration and exhortation, uh, almsgiving, mercy, service, these we are very familiar with. And then in 1 Peter, it, it divides gifts into two categories, speaking gifts and service gifts. For example, someone who is preaching or teaching, that would be speaking. Exhortation, counseling, that would be speaking. Service, someone who is actually hands-on, taking care of others. That includes hospitality, for example. These are something that we are very familiar with as well. And in Ephesians 4, it talks about actually leadership gifts of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. We may not be quite familiar with apostles and prophets, but we are familiar with evangelists, and certainly pastors and teachers. Now, why do I mention this? Because when we get to these nine gifts listed here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 to 10, we find something quite extraordinary. Something supernatural, something that's very difficult for us to identify with. For us, it may be like very foreign, very mysterious. But for the Corinthians, this was so common in those days. Because in their pagan worship, they have been engaged in all these kinds of gifts. And now Paul is talking about this in the context of Christianity. And what are these gifts? I want to just um, categorize them into three aspects. One has to do with revelatory types. World wisdom, world knowledge, discerning of spirits. These are not something that's just coming from common worldly wisdom or not even biblical wisdom. It is not just a wise saying, philosophically speaking. It has to do with the revelatory type of words that are given to us at that moment. Words of wisdom, like Solomon. He knew, he didn't know whether these two women to whom this child belonged to. One was obviously lying, this baby. And the uh, only way he could determine is by a, a spark of inspiration. He said, bring a sword and let's divide the baby in half. And, and the true mother said, no, no. Give the baby over to the other woman. And that woman just lost her mind. Crazy, if you think about it. She said, yeah, let's divide the baby in half and it'll be even and it'll be fair. But God gave wisdom to Solomon like that. God gave wisdom to Jesus always. You know, They went to test him out whether they should pay tax to Caesar or not. What did Jesus say? Very wisely. Give unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give unto God what belongs to God. What did he mean by that? It means, okay, you give tax to Caesar, but you give everything, Caesar's and everything, to God. Because even that belongs to God. What a word 
of wisdom. World of knowledge has to do with just specific knowledge, information that God gave us that we could not know of. The reason why this person is sick, where those things are lost, what the true identity of this person would be. We see that in the Old Testament prophets, in the case of Jesus Christ and his apostles. And discerning of spirits. And like I said, it has to do with discerning the motives of human beings in their different layers of thinkings and, and processings. Or it could be discerning different kinds of spirits. The origin, the source. Is it God's spirit, human spirit, or demonic spirit? The second category would be that of vocal gifts. Here I would put tongues, interpretation of tongues, even prophecy. Even the prophecy is a revelatory gift. It doesn't end with just revelation. Oh yeah, I know, God told me that. It has to be spoken, it has to be pronounced, it has to be witnessed. That's the thing about prophecy. So prophecy has to be known and relayed unto others. So I would put that in the category of vocal gifts. That's usually how it got manifested. And you may not know, but the Old Testament, the, the books of prophecy, the books that the prophets have recorded, these books were not initially, especially the prophetic saying, they were not initially written down. They were spoken first. And oftentimes it's spoken and then written down. Even in the Gospels, Jesus' sayings were not written down initially. They were spoken, then they were recorded. And then the rest of the gifts belong to what I would call power gifts. Uh, these are manifestation of miraculous power or dunamis power of the Holy Spirit. And that would be faith, healing, and miraculous power. But the important thing is this. I don't think Paul is trying to give us a, a catalog of these gifts so that we can enter into discerning what these gifts are and so forth. You know, we may not know exactly the nature of these gifts. We have a general idea. And I, I've been teaching for decades about the specifics of these gifts, not only based upon this text, but based upon the whole Bible, try to look for illustrations for each of these gifts and so forth. But I'm realizing that that's not the bottom line. That's not the important thing. The next verse is the important thing. Verse 11, All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and He distributes them to each one just as He determines. In other words, the gifts are sovereignly endowed by God and distributed according to His will. This means that gifts cannot be produced or manufactured by purely human pressure. And sometimes we, we want those gifts so much, we want them manifested, so we pressurize self and pressurize others. It cannot be manufactured that way. Nor, having manifested in these gifts, we cannot or we should not try to manipulate God or others in the body of Christ. And that happens all the time. People use gifts to control others. People use gifts to manipulate others, especially the gift of prophecy that can be abused in such a terrible way that can be used to attach the string to their hearts or some even to the money purse. And uh, I've, I've also seen a lot of abuses in these areas. And of course, healing. We know that once some kind of sensational healing miracle happens, people just gravitate towards church, gravitate towards the healer, you know, who is seen as next to the divine and so forth. And so, let me wrap up now. 
what I basically want to say in regards to spiritual endowment. Everything is God from the beginning to the end. The source is God. The energizing uh, workings is of God. And even the distribution of the gifts is God. So what does that leave us? That leaves us with nothing but to be at the receiving end as channels and instrument of God's grace. That's all it is. And so where does the boasting come from? Like, oh, I, I can prophesy. Oh, I have certain gifts. I have this and that. There's no room for that. Not even, I am an apostle, I'm a prophet. There's no room for pride in the body of Christ. If I have anything that could be a benefit to the kingdom of God, then it all has to do with me utilizing and contributing and sharing, giving of myself. And if we can do that in the 21st century, then we can avoid the problem that the Corinthian church went through because of their spiritual pride and selfishness and their ego trips and all these nonsenses that was going on in the first century, I hope that we do not replicate them in the 21st century. We've seen a lot of that kind of replication in the movements that we've observed and maybe we were part of. Maybe I myself was also part of that in the past, lacking maturity, lacking insight. But if we take Paul's words seriously, then we must take caution. Gifts are not about us. For having said that, I would say anything that God has given us is not about us. It's not only the inner potentiality, but resources that's given into our hands. The, the things and the possessions and the relationships that's given to our hands. Even our children, they are not ours. They must be all handed over to the Lord for His services. And we must simply be channels of His grace and His power. I think that's what it means by spiritual giftings or manifestations as Paul presents in this text. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.